From Sarajevo to Red Africa, Episode 5, The First Twin Crisis. Hey, dobrodan, mulibuanji. Zdravo, how's it? Alo. I'm Ruthie. I'm from Sarajevo to Red Africa. Welcome to our podcast about the people and history of the real third world. Forget the telethons. The phrase the third world came about as an act of defiance when several smaller and mainly post-colonial nations decided that they did not want to choose between the Western first world or the Eastern second world, but to choose their own third way. Alone, they could not rival the superpowers, but together they could be a force to be reckoned with. The nations of the Third World weren't merely poverty-stricken post-colonial backwaters. They had traditions of thousands of years of literature. They were the cradle of humankind and civilization, and they had fought hard battles for self-determination. And, even more, the events of the world today directly descend from the Third World's past. These stories have been overlooked long enough, and we're going to tell them to you here. 1956 brought the world twin crises, at the same moment, in Egypt and Hungary. The positioning of each side in the burgeoning Cold War at each crisis could not have been more different. On the one hand, championing the cause of freedom from oppression, and on the other, pushing for foreign control of a sovereign state. Which side the Cold War leaders were on depended entirely on which crisis was being discussed. Completely intertwined and yet also separate events, the complicated and convoluted path of these crises were an identifiable moment when history definably solidified toward a U.S.-USSR axis in the Cold War and heavy nuclear threat, as well as the European Union. Gamal Abdel Nasser was born in 1918, and he wasn't born into anything that would have given any indication of future greatness. His father was a postal worker. But very early in his teens, he began picking up the mantle of Arab nationalism. In 1935, he led a student protest against the foreign minister of Great Britain, where his head was grazed by a police bullet. His political activities made it hard for him to get into the Royal Military Academy, but by pulling some strings, he was admitted and immediately started gathering a like-minded group of cadets with strong nationalist sentiments. His personal bravery was never in doubt. He fought and was wounded in the 1948 war, and all this served to establish Nasser as an up-and-coming leader, albeit one that Royal Egyptian establishment was quite wary of. Now here, I need to stop a moment and say that we could host tens of hours of podcasts on the subject of Gamal Abdel Nasser himself, and even more merely on Egyptian history in only the 20th century. But since our purpose today is to discuss half of the twin crises of 1956, we're going to be much abbreviated in our discussion of Nasser, and we'll hopefully be able to return to him with a more in-depth personal look in later podcasts. There's only so much we can cover in a 15 to 20 minute podcast, and I do hope that you will use this as a jumping off point for learning more about Nasser, Egyptian history, and the Suez Crisis. In a nutshell, on July 22, 1952, Nasser's Free Officers Movement began the Egyptian Revolution, which toppled King Farouk. At first, Farouk merely abdicated in favor of his son, but on June 18, 1953, the monarchy was entirely abolished. But the abolishment of the monarchy was a small thing compared to what Nasser managed in March of 1953 when he led the delegation which negotiated the withdrawal of the British from the Suez. 
The Middle East in the 1950s had the tension of history and current events all converging at once. There was the ongoing episodic fighting with Israel, the fallout of 1948, and Egypt's open support for the FLN fighting against France and Algeria. The Egyptian public openly hated the British, who had come in 1882, and although independence was declared in 1922, extensive British influence remained, not the least of which was Britain's 44% share of the Suez stock, which they bought from a financially strapped Egypt in 1875. In February 1955, two events, although unrelated, were conflated by the Egyptian government as well as Nasser. First, the Baghdad Pact, modeled on NATO, was signed by Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Turkey, and the UK. This pact was specifically meant to limit the influence of the Soviet Union in the Middle East, but Nasser saw it as a personal affront meant to chip away at the Arab League and solidify the British in the Middle East just as he was trying to push them out. Second, Israel launched a large operation into Gaza just four days later with the stated aim of suppressing Fedayeen attacks. Nasser, and indeed Egypt generally, believed that the Israeli operation so soon after the signing of the Baghdad Pact was done to send him a message, and he was not in a receptive mood. Then there was the issue of arms. Egypt had first broached the United States, but was rebuffed with only an offer of small arms. Egypt needed more, and at the Bandung Conference in 1955, Nasser approached the Chinese representative Zhu Enlai. Zhu Enlai pointed him toward the Soviets, who were thrilled to get a foothold into the Middle East, and offered him a cornucopia of weaponry to be funneled through Czechoslovakia. Of course, no one was fooled by the switcheroo of national origins, but it did allow Nasser a way to downplay his connection with the USSR. That made no difference to Western opinion, which was now overtly suspicious of Nasser's trustworthiness, despite the positive impressions on the U.S. CIA officers, which included Kermit Roosevelt, the son of President Teddy Roosevelt, who were in Egypt at the time. But as Nasser said to those officers at one meeting, we think you've been conducting a comic opera in the Middle East. It was not meant as a joke. The leaders of France and Great Britain, Guy Moyet and Anthony Eden, had strong personal hatred for Nasser, and both wanted to see him toppled. In the case of Moyet, Egypt's support for the FLN was unforgivable. He had been utterly humiliated by an incident during an Algerian visit when he was pelted with rotten fruit and tomatoes, still referred to today as la journée des tomates. He blamed Nasser for the ongoing rebellion. Eden's dislike of Nasser descended more and more into personal hatred. In one speech, he held up a copy of Nasser's book, The Philosophy of the Revolution, and said, The pattern is familiar to many of us, my friends. We all know this is how fascist governments behave, and we all remember only too well what the cost is in giving in to fascism. Eden would make several remarks equating Nasser's book to Mein Kampf. It was a speech point picked up by Mollet as well. The last British troops left Egypt on June 13, 1956, but under the Anglo-Egyptian Agreement of 1954, the British had a right to return, and the Suez Canal Company would revert to Egypt in 1968. Both of these points became very important in the second half of 1956. In July, Nasser was meeting with Yugoslavia's Tito and India's Nehru on the Croatian island of Briuni to discuss creating a third-world non-aligned movement. 
They had no idea it would be tested immediately. It was on Nasser's flight home to Egypt that he received word that the British and the U.S. had withdrawn their pledge of financial support to build the Aswan High Dam. The pledge withdrawal wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. Publicly, the U.S. and U.K. stated that they didn't believe that Egypt was fully capable of realizing the project. This was definitely a part of the reason, but the arms shipments from Czechoslovakia had made the West increasingly wary. And when Egypt recognized the People's Republic of China, likely stemming from Nasser's interactions with Zhu Enlai at Bandung and later, it seemed to indicate a change in national stance. It was enough to cause the two powers to pull back their money, particularly since both believed it was not a project the USSR was capable of helping Egypt fund in their absence. Nasser showed intense rage, as reported by Nehru, who was sharing the plane home from Briuni, but no hesitation. He nationalized the Suez Canal, claiming its funds would be used to fund the construction of the Aswan High Dam. He also took that moment to close the canal to Israeli shipping. Before the end of July, Britain began planning for an invasion. Previously, there had been irritations out of Egypt, but this threatened the British oil supply, and that was simply unacceptable. Publicly, diplomacy was in full gear. All the major powers, as well as the leaders of the Third World, were meeting, discussing ideas, and proposing their own solutions. The United Nations was being fully utilized, although Britain and France were playing on their Security Council seats to stymie proposals outside their interests. Behind the scenes, there was even more at play, much of which wasn't revealed until the dumps of Suez Canal documents were released to the public beginning in 1977. But these behind-the-scenes issues caused reactions amongst the various players that looked absolutely ridiculous to anyone trying to make sense of the situation as it unfolded. Although it wasn't introduced until 1957, the Eisenhower Doctrine, meant to cut off the Soviet Union from influence in the Middle East, was already in a nascent and developing state. The U.S. desperately wanted Egypt on its side, even going so far as to attempt to bribe Nasser with $3 million to join the Baghdad Pact. Nasser took the money, but then declined to follow instructions. The British were frustrated at America's pushing its way into what they saw as their sphere of influence. Then, Egypt was irritated at U.S. attempts to draw Jordan into the Baghdad Pact, again a shot at weakening the Nasser-led Arab League. The U.S. was installing and reinstalling Adib al-Shishakli in Syria, causing political issues that spilled into Egypt. Nasser was sponsoring anti-British riots in Jordan. Iraq was firmly on the side of the West, under the Hashemites, and agitating against Egypt. Saudi Arabia was supportive of Egypt's position publicly, but resented Nasser's pride of place as leader of the Arab world, a position it wanted for itself. Both Anthony Eden of Great Britain and Guy Mollet of France were carrying deep and personal grudges against Nasser, wanting him completely out of the picture by whatever means necessary. And then there was Israel. Even more behind the scenes, the type of secret conspiratorial meeting normally confined to the pages of credulity-threatening spy novels was taking place. Between 22 and 24 October, representatives of France, Britain, and Israel were meeting in Seville and planning the military takeover of the canal and the ouster of Nasser. It was agreed that Israel would attack Egypt and the Sinai, and then Britain and France would intervene under the aegis of separating the two sides and protecting shipping in the canal zone. 
There was some cover for this given under the Right to Return Clause of the Anglo-Egypt Agreement of 1954. It all seemed very cut and dried, easy even. But Israel, in the interests of self-protection, demanded a signed copy of the agreement reached at the Sikot Seville meeting. So there were records. And despite the secret and secure protocols, word of the meeting leaked. So it was that when Israel commenced Operation Chadesh on October 29th, Nasser was informed that Britain and France would be a part of the plan as well. Nasser could not believe that information. Look here, he said. Israel and France can do it, but the British cannot cooperate with the Israelis. They have dignity and they will hesitate a hundred times to cooperate with the Israelis. Yugoslavia stepped forward at the UN to point out that the Security Council was hamstrung on 30 October, proposing that the emergency special session of the General Assembly be convened for the first time. But it took time for members to arrive and debate. There was also the issue of another massive crisis occurring at the same time. The world found itself having to divide attention between the revolution in Hungary, testing the Soviet Union, and the developing war in the Suez Canal, testing the West. These twin crises were unfolding simultaneously, with repercussions still felt today throughout the world. On November 2nd, UN Resolution 997 called for immediate ceasefire and withdrawal of all the forces behind the armistice lines, an arms embargo, and the reopening of the canal. Ignoring the UN resolution, French and British paratroopers landed in the canal zone. Militarily, the Egyptians were losing badly, and reports about Nasser during this time have him often despairing. Despite that, and despite the fact that Voice of the Arabs radio had been cut off and the frequency hijacked for propaganda, Nasser appeared in public to give a rousing speech to the Egyptians of Cairo. We shall fight, and we shall not surrender. We shall fight from village to village, from place to place. Earlier in October, when the British had withdrawn their pilots from the Suez Canal, Russians and Yugoslavs had come in to make up the slack. It's a scene brilliantly explained by Prince Philip in the first episode of season two of The Crown. Side note, although Jeremy Northam plays a simply brilliant Anthony Eden, the depiction of the meeting between Eden and Nasser in this episode is not particularly how it all went down. In real life, Eden was far more patronizing and condescending. In any case, it all made perfect sense for the Egyptians to turn to the Soviets. But again, the issue was that there were two potentially world-ending crises happening at the same time, and the Soviet Union was bogged down in Hungary. Approached for support by the Egyptian ambassador in Moscow, Khrushchev responded, We're full of admiration for the way in which you are resisting aggression, but unfortunately, there's no way we can help you militarily. But we are going to mobilize world public opinion. Mobilizing world public opinion was certainly in the Soviet Union's best interests. Their behavior in Hungary would best be hidden behind someone else's escapades and international bullying, and France and Britain had given them the perfect target. We understand the yearnings of the peoples of Arab countries who are fighting for their full liberation from foreign dependence. One cannot, at the same time, fail to condemn the actions of Israel, which from the first days of its existence began threatening its neighbors and pursuing an unfriendly policy towards them. Presumably, Khrushchev made this statement without any sense of irony, and there are always those who hear the words and don't bother with the actions. 
But the truth remains that at the same time, the Soviets were crushing a nation in Europe, fighting for full liberation from foreign dependence itself. And that problem was present for all nations watching these twin crises unfold. In the words of Richard Nixon, we couldn't, on the one hand, complain about the Soviets intervening in Hungary, and on the other hand, approve of the British and French picking that particular time to intervene against Nasser. But international pressure was bringing everything to a head. Fully on board with military action in July, when the canal had been closed, the British public was now sharply divided and there were protests at home. Saudi Arabia, in support of Egypt, had instituted an oil embargo on the UK and France, and Syrians had blown up two of three oil pipelines, causing a crisis. In Karachi, the British High Commission was set ablaze. The Soviet Union was threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And the United States was applying financial pressure to the UK, which was teetering near the brink of a financial collapse. On November 6, without notifying the French or Israelis, Eden announced a ceasefire. Anglo-French troops would be completely withdrawn by December 22, 1956, and their place taken by a United Nations emergency force consisting of nations not allied with either superpower bloc. Although there were Canadian forces, however, Canada had been instrumental in pushing toward a peace solution, which resulted in a Nobel Prize for Prime Minister Lester Pearson. By the end of 1957, any assets left in Egypt belonging to France and Britain were nationalized. Egypt, although militarily defeated, came out as the victor. Khrushchev congratulated the Egyptian ambassador, saying, You've cut off the British lion's tail and we've drawn his teeth. Nasser went on to be the symbol of pan-Arabism, mainly due to his reputation of victory in the Suez Crisis and his own personal charisma. Although he would certainly have challenges over the next 15 years before his death in 1970, he remained as the go-to leader of the Arab world, and his funeral showcased intense mourning from both leadership, Gaddafi fainted twice during the funeral and King Hussein of Jordan openly wept, and ordinary people all over the Islamic world. Anthony Eden was forced to resign in the UK, and Guy Moyet led the last stable government of France's Fourth Republic, due in large part to his management of the Suez Crisis in Algeria. His biography is titled Guy Moyet, the Unloved One. It's rather fitting. Khrushchev and the Soviet Union were immensely helped by the Suez Crisis, which took the world's eye off their atrocities in the Hungarian Revolution. It also underlined to Khrushchev that nuclear blackmail was a viable option that showed results, leading directly to the Berlin Crisis and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The two showdowns also reversed Khrushchev's previous moves away from Stalinism. He became much less interested in redressing the excesses of the purges and moved toward a more hardline stance domestically and internationally. The Franco-American alliance never really recovered from what the French saw as faithlessness on the part of its U.S. allies, and this was a large factor in the French withdrawal from NATO's military command in 1966. But it was not only the French who felt uneasy with the American behind-the-scenes support of Nasser. West Germany also began to question whether the nuclear umbrella protection of the United States would actually be effective. Konrad Adenauer, the West German Chancellor, pushed harder for a European force apart from the leadership of the United States. This led to the creation of the European Economic Community and, eventually, the European Union. Working together tirelessly at the United Nations, the crisis also saw the rise of Yugoslavia and India, 
and the Third World Alliance that they were building as leaders and a force to be reckoned with. The ties between these three nations in particular would be lasting, even after the deaths of their respective leaders. In 1988, the son of Nasser fled arrest in Egypt for participation in a revolutionary terrorist group. Although Tito had been dead for eight years and the Yugoslav state itself was charging towards collapse, Khalid Abdel Nasser sought refuge in Belgrade and was welcomed there. He remained for two years until returning to Egypt. And, as a seeming non-sequitur, the Suez crisis actually led to the adoption of a new Canadian flag, the one we're all familiar with now with the red maple leaf. Nasser strenuously objected to the flag used by the Canadian troops that were a part of the UNAF because it carried a British ensign. The familiar-to-us flag had already been in use in some situations since World War II, and Egyptian objections furthered the discussion in Canada about removing foreign symbols from their national flag. The United States had a far more complicated outcome from the twin crises. Although the nascent Eisenhower doctrine did not work at all in Egypt, it became official in 1957, and it failed miserably. Middle Eastern leaders were far more concerned about home turf threats and the lasting scars of Western colonialism than the possibility of encroaching Soviet influence. As Nasser said, The genius of you Americans is that you never make clear-cut stupid moves, only complicated stupid moves that make us wonder at the possibility there may be something we are missing. On the other hand, before the Suez Crisis, superpowers had been defined as the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. After Suez, there were only two. The United States and the Soviet Union stood on top together, alone, as the Cold War colored everything in its path, including the decolonization movement. We have not even scratched the surface of Egypt, Nasser, or the Suez Crisis in this episode, but I hope it at least gives a place to start. There's so much more detail, so much more nuance, and so much more to this incident that resulted in the final birth of the bipolar Cold War world, and no time left to discuss it at all although we can hopefully talk more in future episodes. Next episode in the Third World, we'll take a look at the other half of the twin crises, the Hungarian Revolution. So for now, please read more, go back further, and for heaven's sake, make sure you can find these places on a map. Until next time, zdravo, salane buino oke, ciao, au revoir, vidimo se, tozzi.